You're listening to the Firefighter Success Podcast. Join us as we learn from successful firefighters and fire service leaders on how to achieve excellence. When lives depend on us, success is our only option. Welcome to episode 62 of the Firefighter Success Podcast. I'm your host and also the author of Firefighter Success, Jim Moss. Now, before I introduce our guest, I wanted to let you know that you, your fire department, or your fire academy can receive a 10% discount on every bulk book order from the Firefighter Success website. That's firefightersuccessbook.com. Just click on the contact us link and you can get your quote. Uh, Just let me know how many copies you want and I'll get you a free quote. So I'm very excited about today's guest. He is a mover and shaker. Uh, He's a fun guy to talk to, and I'm sure you'll get that from our conversation. But more importantly, he's a a true leader and a change agent uh, in the fire service. Eddie Buchanan began his fire service career in 1982 and is currently the chief of administration for Hanover Fire EMS in Richmond, Virginia. He is the past president of the International Society of Fire Service Instructors and was the George D. Post Instructor of the Year in 2015 for the creation of the SLICE RS concept, which was incorporated into ISFSI's Principles of Modern Fire Attack Program. Eddie also serves on the Executive Advisory Board for FDIC and Fire Engineering Magazine and on the NFPA Technical Committee for Fire Services Training. He is the author of the Volunteer Training Officers Handbook from Fire Engineering Books and Videos. Chief Eddie Buchanan, Thanks so much for joining me today on the Firefighter Success Podcast. So glad you could be here. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be a good one for sure. Yeah. And just, I want to say congrats on this podcast. I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm a listener, so I appreciate uh, all the success and love checking in on it every, you know, every, every episode. So congrats on doing great work. Well, thank you very much, sir. Uh, it's people like you who uh, make it successful. So uh, love listening and, and learning from leaders like you. And uh, I'm sure uh, that today's going to be a great episode. And so let's get rolling. So first question I like to ask everybody, all the guests on my podcast, what is your personal definition of success and how do you recommend we go about achieving it? A personal definition of success. Of course, I've been pondering it, you know, knowing as a, as a listener, I know it's coming. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was kind of like, how can I boil this down, you know, into the most bare essence of what I think success is, where I landed was really just finding individual peace. Mm. To me, that's, that's the ultimate success. If I can find just peace, I, I think I've been successful and I'll, and I'll elaborate the when I say peace, I mean, that's, that's creating a situation uh, primarily first off where your family's cared for. I think that's mm. the first thing that has to happen. Yeah. Um, then, uh, then if you can create a situation where you're able to chase your passion on a regular basis, like when, when you get out, head out of the house in the morning and you're going to do something you're passionate about, I think whatever that is, I think that's, that's, that leads you towards peace. And then I think the ability to make some sort of positive contribution to whatever your endeavor is, uh, mm. to leave a mark, as they say. Yeah. Um, I think if you can achieve those basic things, that will lead you to a sense of, of this kind of individual peace. And I think that's what everybody's ultimately trying to do. Yeah. Um, in all, all our various flavors of, you know, whatever our, our calling is, you know, in this case, we're speaking mostly about the fire service, but um, I think in any, any walk of life, I think that's what the, the definition of success would be for me. Mm, that's great. So, you know, creating a situation and, and making sure, first of all, we find our individual peace. And for you, that's creating a situation where, first of all, your family is the first priority before anything mm-hmm. else, which is awesome. And I just put out a post today on social media uh, attesting to that, uh, that we need to find balance and prioritize uh, as firefighters. It's great to be all in. It's great to be so invested in the fire service, but we need to know what is most important to us uh, if we were to leave the fire service uh, unexpectedly or when we retire uh, after a full career, uh, we need to make sure that we have put our family before the fire service. And I I agree with that 100%. And then secondly, you said chasing your passion. That's so true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And setting up those goals that will help you uh, chase your passion and and achieve it. And then lastly, leaving a mark or leaving an impact 
uh, a positive impact on those around us in the fire service. And you are undoubtedly doing that uh, with uh, the four decades you have in the fire service and you continue to do it. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what you've done and how you've done it. Um, and I would kind of transition, uh, you know, you are someone who is so passionate about leadership as I am. Uh, and I want to talk directly to the leaders listening, the aspiring leaders also listening to the podcast. And I want to talk about your leading with attitude program. So why did you create it and what's it all about? Well, the leading with attitude program is a complete accident. Um, I didn't sit down to, uh, you know, write an article or write a class or whatever about uh, attitude. It, it actually stems from a couple of things, two things. Um, the, the, the first scenario that, that really got my attention was, uh, oh man, 20, over 20 years ago, our department went through something we call the merger. Mm -hmm. uh, it was where we, we were a separate fire department from an EMS department. We had a fire chief and an EMS chief and all the things that came with that. And uh, we were also primarily a volunteer fire department. We had uh, paid administrative staff, training officers and fire marshals and things like that. But folks out on the fire engines and, you know, riding backwards and stuff were largely volunteer. And uh, we started when this merger came along, the, the mission was to make this thing into one organization and it had to be done with relative speed. I mean, it, it didn't, it wasn't anything we said in five years, we're gonna, it was, you know, in, in three months, this is what's going to happen. So we had to figure it out. And uh, it was brutal. It was, <laughs> you know, we, we like to say we upset everybody in the organization all at once for some reason or another. And it and, was uh, baptism by fire, right? Man, it was, it was a, it was a interesting time. Like, you know, where just everybody's mad about something. It was really mm. bizarre. And, uh, you know, fire and EMS merging together, career volunteer merging together. We started putting firefighters on fire trucks instead of, you know, be, being a volunteer based thing. And uh, it, it was just a lot of turmoil. And I was talking to one of my mentors, kind of our regular checkup we would have, you know, where he would, we would just kind of check in with each other. And he, you know, he asked me how I was, how's it going? And uh, well, I told him, <laughs> I started to go on a rant, you know, for a good, I don't know, probably went on a rant for at least 10 minutes. And uh, he kind of rocked back in his chair and uh, kind of gave me a funny look. And I took a breath for a second and I stopped and I said, kind of what, <laughs> what, what is it? He goes, I thought you love what you do. Mm. I, I, I answered uh, kind of like I do. Like, you, know, <laughs> you have to say you do, right? Like right. that's, that's the program. You, I, yes, I love my, I love being a firefighter. I love that. But in that moment, I realized I wasn't the person I hadn't become the, I wasn't doing the things I thought I, I was hope I was doing. Right. You know, I was trying mm -hmm. to, you always try to be the go, go to guy and all that. And then the next thing you know, you're that guy. And how did the heck did that happen? Mm. So I, I, it kind of gave me a wake up call as to where I was uh, from an attitude perspective. But somehow my attitude had drifted and uh, I started to reconstruct the reasons why and understanding how to how can I better stay on focus? You know, because that's what's going to happen when you're in the fire service for a long time. You're going to be challenged in a lot of different ways. And uh and it's not going to stop, you know, it's just going to keep coming. That's, that's just what happens. So mm. how can you better arm yourself to make sure you can hang on to the reasons we love doing what we do in the first place, in spite of challenges that may come up from time to time. So that, that was one piece of it. And then, you know, started talking with my instructor brothers, you know, about it. And uh, actually a, a good friend of mine named Scott Thompson, who's, uh, you know, He's, he's kicking all kinds of butt right now with, with his leadership stuff. And, and he and I actually wrote an article. I don't know how many years ago it was, but it was just a, a, a quick article in fire engineering about how attitude matters and how it influences people. And uh, we, that got published. And then the next thing, you know, next thing I know, I'm teaching a class on it, you know, <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't, wasn't like we set out. I'll tell you a funny story. I actually had uh, Scott and I always laugh about this. We had somebody uh, actually contact us several years after that article was published and they wanted to know what research, you know, they wanted to know what our research model was for putting that article together. <laughs> and, and we kind of chuckled and said, well, I hate to tell you this, but a cooler beer in the second floor at the Hampton Inn in Indy, that's basically how it got done. <laughs> that so, sometimes that's the best, that's the best preparation. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, so I, hate, I hate to disappoint you, but we didn't research anything. That's this life experience and a couple of, you know, old dogs talking, that's all. And uh, they, they couldn't believe that. They were like, wow, I, we thought y'all had some academic thing. No. 
oh, this life. So that and the program, you know, it's been around for probably better, probably knocking on 20 years or more. Uh, and it evolves. Uh, we go through things, you know, about this, I guess, nuggets I learn. I, I add things and delete things to the to the program on a regular basis, just added stuff on the last last couple of weeks, you know, where you where you learn something new and you mm-hmm. figure out how to how to share it with others. And uh, you know, I, the thing I've I guess the overarching thrust of that program is the greatest lesson I ever learned about leadership was that it is an internal journey, not an external task. Mm. So if you think about it, a lot of the a lot of the things we they focus on when you look at all the various leadership concepts that are in the world, it's a lot, a lot of focused on how to motivate others, you know, and get yeah. people to do what you need them to do. And uh, I guess through learning the hard way, I finally figured out that the leadership challenge is actually an internal one. You, you won't lead anyone anywhere unless you can effectively lead yourself. That's right. So That's right. until you master that and, and start to really look inward and start to think about things and, and, and I, I always tell the class, you know, assume command of yourself. You know how to run a fire in a major complex incident. Do the same thing. You know, look at it from an incident command perspective. How would you tackle this uh, incident of life that we're working with? And what tools can we leverage to, to do better with it? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's an inward thing. And uh, it's, I think follower, being a, an effective follower is a big piece of that. You know, we talk right. about that a lot. Uh, so it's a fun class. Uh there's no, there's no notes. There's no, uh, hardly any slides. It's, uh, you know, just kind of a self-reflection. So it's a tremendous, uh, whole lot of fun to teach. Oh, I bet. I bet. And, uh, you know, what I got from your story of, of when you were talking to your, your colleague, when you were going through the storm of the changeover of going, uh, combining all those different, uh, uh variables, uh, when you had that merger was that you, you really had that time to think and, and realize that, you know, it's never too late to have that introspection. It's never too late to check yourself and to lead, to change and choose a positive attitude, which sometimes we all need to do when we're down in the valley. And, uh, you know, we, we don't know how we're, we're going to get out of it and, and lead others. But I couldn't agree more with you when you said, you know, leadership, most importantly, is an internal journey, not an external task. That's really so well said. And yes, we have tasks and action steps that we have to implement as leaders, but focusing on ourselves before we focus on anyone else is really the most important thing because I think when we do that, we naturally inspire, we naturally motivate, and we naturally encourage others, you know, our followers around us to, to be better and hopefully inspire them to lead themselves as well. So it's just a cyclical process. So next question for you, in your opinion, what would you say are the three most essential qualities of true leaders? The first thing is always going to be integrity. That's, that's a, a question I ask the class all the time. I'll, I'll ask folks, uh, what is the definition of integrity? And I've asked it, I don't even know how many times all over the place. And I always get the same answer. And it's doing the right thing when no one's looking. I don't know what Webster says, but I can tell you what firefighters say. Mm. And they define integrity as doing the right thing when no one's looking. So that's got to sit at, at the kind of the root of a leader's uh, mm. DNA, I guess, is that we'll always know that that person will try to do the right thing. That, mm-hmm. And how you perceive the right thing may be different, right? That's always something to challenge our own self with our own leadership perspective. If I feel like someone has uh, done something wrong, that's from my perspective, but I don't always have all of the facts, you know, I always leave that, that place in your mind, in your mind and heart for that. Right. But doing the right thing uh, when no one's looking, I think is an important, important piece of the foundation. And then from there, I think uh, the, I guess we're doing three. The second thing I would say, it's a, it's a healthy combination of humility and confidence. And it's a, it's a, it's a pendulum swing, right? Mm. So yeah. uh, as you grow, as a, as a fire officer or a leader in your organization, there'll be that you'll probably start with some humility because you're not quite sure what you're doing. And then you get a little bit of experience under your belt and that pendulum kind of swings over to confidence <laughs> for, for a few years. And then it will finally hopefully settle down into some sort of right. healthy balance of that to where you have a, 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 a good balance of the confidence to do what you need to do to be secure in yourself and, and able to move the ball down the field, which can be difficult uh, sometimes. 
but the humility to realize it was never about you in the first place. So, you know, that's one of the key factors, I think, with, uh, with any major initiative you might undertake in your career is that it needs to be about the initiative, not about you and the, you know, your name being on it or whatever, just get the ball down the field. And we'll, we'll celebrate the touchdown together. You know, it's that, that's the main, that's the main thing. So, um, and you see that, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've been a complete egomaniac idiot before uh, in my life. And, and I can see that now as I watch people grow, you know, that are around you, you know, you, you can see kind of that, that uh, pendulum swing back and forth and it's, it always settles down. And, and some of it's just kind of coaching and kind of don't let them run off the rails, but you know, they're understand that's part of the experience I think is uh, you know, we always tease about the, what is it? The five to seven year rookie or something that people will uh, say that they become an expert at some point, but Maybe not really. They, they, they just don't know what they don't know yet. That's all. Don't we all? <laughs> but, um, you know, you go through that and you find that yeah, healthy balance. Exactly. Um, hopefully that you find that balance at some point. And then I think um, vision would be my third thing, I would say. Um, the, the ability to look downrange and play the long game, I think, is a critical component. Yeah. Uh, and then being able to articulate that when the time is right uh, is another side of that vision, you know, so. You know, you will be playing the, I had a conversation with uh, a young fire officer the other day and this kid's going to be a superstar. I mean, he has all the, all of the, all of the markings of a, of a great leader and great, you know, person that's going to make a big positive contribution to our fire service. And uh, we were kind of talking about their long range plans and they were, you know, I was kind of thinking maybe captain and we were like, <laughs> no, you probably want you to go be a chief of some sort. That, that's just going to happen. He goes, well, I never mm. considered that. And I said, well, you, you need to be thinking about the long game. Uh, I agree. When I got in the fire service, my goal was, I thought maybe I'd retire as a Lieutenant if I was lucky and well, didn't work out that way, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it's good to have of, goals. <laughs> just kind of ping ponging my way through this thing. And here we are, but um, you know, really looking downrange and understanding that uh, this is how things will likely play out. And, how human behavior affects that and the environment affects that and, and being able to look and be in front of it and, and already uh, kind of set up to deal with when it happens. I think some of the best leaders I've ever seen could look out 10, 15 years and kind of see what was coming long before it ever came mm, and had yeah. positioned themselves and our organization in a way to, to better handle it. So, mm. so integrity, humility, confidence, and vision would be the three. I agree with all three of those, and especially with the blend of humility and confidence. I think with humility, you can still have that quiet confidence uh, within you, uh, and and you you're not going to be an egomaniac if if you have that quiet confidence. And usually, when you see you know the fire ground is starting to wind up and voices are starting to go up and it's starting to get chaotic, you just look for the the leader, the firefighter, the chief officer who has that quiet confidence, who isn't starting to uh, rise to the chaos, but he's calm. He's leading by example. His voice is in check, uh, and he's willing to uh, lead others without uh, you know going crazy <laughs> per se. Um, and so that's that's something I've always admired in the leaders and firefighters around me. Uh, is when uh, life or the fire ground or the firehouse uh, becomes chaotic, look to them and they'll be the example of how to lead with quiet confidence. Yeah. Uh, so I want to transition uh, to a little bit more serious topic. Uh, your department has actually had a tough run of firefighter deaths lately. I understand you've had five job-related deaths in the last five years. So how's your department dealing with that? Well, as, as best we can. Um, I, I would say, well, uh, but I don't know what to benchmark that against, right? <laughs> you know, so it's mm, it's right. uh, we, yeah. we feel like we're doing the best we can, but it's it's really I don't know I don't know how to what to compare it to 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 make an assessment. But we've we've actually we've had six uh, firefighters who have passed away in what we would categorize as job related. Uh, mm. The first one was back in 2012. One of our volunteer firefighters, uh, Rusty Dempsey, was kind of like the mayor of the of the local fire department here. And uh, he passed away from a heart attack going to a call back in 2012. And, uh, you know, that was devastating, but we could understand it. Uh, we, we, you know, firefighters do have heart attacks and that was, it was sad. And we miss Rusty today. And then we, we were okay for a while. Um, we had always joked that we had a, a golden horseshoe stuck in our sector C for a long time. 
And, mm. uh, you know, we, we'd get away with stuff <laughs> and nobody would get seriously hurt, but we would get away with stuff. And, uh, we always kind of said, we got to, one day this horseshoe is going to fall out and it's going to, it's going to make a big noise. And, uh, sure enough, uh, one of my good friends, uh, actually a peer who was, a, another assistant chief at the time, uh, Henry Moore, uh, was his name. He was in my wedding. We were neighbors. I've known this guy since, I don't know. I've always known this guy and, uh, he well loved in the department. Uh, like I said, was one of the executive staff as assistant chief. And it was that week, uh, between, uh, Christmas and new year's, you know, that kind of weird week that nobody knows what to do with. Uh, he was having some belly pain and he went, uh, to the ER thinking he'd probably get something taken out or something like that. You know, it seemed like it wasn't that serious of a deal. He was just having some belly pain and, uh, he was dead from cancer by the, uh, by the second week of February, mm. just to give you some idea of how fast wow. that went, you know, it was, uh, it was quick. And, uh, we were like, what the heck, uh, you know, cause Henry had just had his, uh, physical in the fall. All right. We do a, you know, 1582 compliant physical. We've always been pretty aggressive about that. And, uh, so I was like, how the heck did we miss that? And it turns out uh, Henry's personal physician is another friend of mine, also a neighbor. And uh, I, so I was hitting up both docs. I was like, what the heck, guys? Wow. <laughs> you know, how did we, how did we miss this? Uh, he was just in here in October. I think it was October. It was his last physical. And here we are February and he's gone. What the heck? And uh, what do we need to change our testing or whatever? And the both docs agreed that it wasn't that they missed anything. It wasn't there yet. Mm. It's just what got him was that aggressive. Yeah. And, uh, that was, that was pretty, pretty bad. So that, that kind of started our, that changed our attitude towards, uh, some of our cancer prevention stuff. We got pretty aggressive about on-scene decon. Uh, we issued those buckets, you know, with the brushes yeah. and the wipes and the, did all that and got after that pretty good and started really paying attention, uh, talking with, uh, we've got a great occupational uh, doc that we work with. He knows the NFPA standard inside out. He understands our line of duty desk. I couldn't ask for a better partner from a medical standpoint standpoint than to have our doc with us that we work with. And, uh, you know, so we really started to work on it. And then that was in 17. And then in 18, uh, one of another one of our firefighters, a lieutenant, uh, actually retired first, but ended up uh, dying of a, res a respiratory lung disease. Mm. It was like a de degenerative lung disease that uh, eventually killed him. So, uh, Interesting thing, as I tell you these quick synopsis of, of each one, I'll tell you which ones were line of duty and which one weren't when it's when we get to the end of it here, just to keep that keep track of that. But uh, Punky was his name. That's what was his nickname, James Kegley. Uh, you know, long time came up as a volunteer and another devastating loss for us. Then this one did end up being a line of duty death. Mm. Uh, he's on the wall in Emmitsburg. And uh in contrast to that, Henry was not. I'll just tell you as we go. Henry, uh, we applied for the line of duty death benefits, but they were denied because they couldn't, it was so bad, they couldn't really articulate, or the doctor maybe didn't do a great job of articulating where the cancer started from. Uh, so with our presumptive law in Virginia, you, they, they give you a list. If your cancer starts here, it falls under the presumptive clause. And if it doesn't, uh, it's not. So uh, he just had it everywhere. So they never did get a good pin on where it started and then in uh that was so punky was in that was 17 then uh punky was 18 and then just a few months later uh one of our lieutenants was hit and killed out on the interstate lieutenant brad clark yeah uh which folks might have heard of that one that one got a lot of a lot of attention around the country um but brad ended up getting the uh courage and valor award at fdic that year because he used his last second to warn his crew as opposed to jumping out of the way and uh, he directly saved at least one of his crew members and uh, likely uh, had a positive effect on the other two guys that were on the truck as well. But um, it ended up killing Brad. And uh, one of the firefighters received so many injuries that uh, I, I'm amazed that he survived it, to be honest with you. I've never seen somebody break so much stuff and uh, live through it. But he did. But he's medically retired. Uh, him and his wife are expecting their firstborn soon. So that, that worked out pretty good. And, uh, and then the other firefighter, uh, he actually lost his leg that night and that was his first shift. He was supposed to graduate the Academy that night. And we had, uh, canceled the graduation because of the tropical storm that was uh, on top of us. And he was assigned to the rig. That was his first shift and he lost his leg wow. <laughs> that night. 
And, uh, but he has, I'll, I'll tell you the tenacity with this guy. Uh, we're in the, I'm in the emergency room and they're trying to save our two firefighters here side by side and two beds and working pretty aggressively on both of them. And, and, uh, this young firefighter was still conscious and he knew his leg was probably going to be gone. And, uh, his first question to me was chief, can I get back on the rig? Can I, can I miss up? Can I not have a leg and still be a firefighter? Mm. I was like, son, don't worry about that right now, <laughs> but, yeah. but we're going to, we're going to take care of you. And sure enough, there's actually a whole network of uh, folks who have lost a limb and do our job. And they sure enough, somebody had flown out here shortly after that to help him get back up to speed. And he's, he's doing great out there today. Oh, wow. That's yeah. great. So that was two in 18, right? We lost Punky and Brad all in the same year. And then uh, up to 2021, one of our battalion chiefs, uh, also uh, Jeff Phipps, uh, another guy who grew up in the department. He passed away from cancer uh, in 2021, not too long ago. And uh, that was devastating as well. And that, that's where we really started to appreciate the cancer, firefighter cancer network. Mm -hmm. um, they were really, really instrumental in helping us at that point. They've always been helpful, but uh, Jeff got a, a really good bond with his uh, liaison that came, they would come help him. And uh, it was, it was, that was a devastating death as well. And then uh, just uh, two weeks ago, we buried uh, one of the lieutenants that worked for me, uh, Jimmy Alexander also died of a, of a cancer type uh, just the other day. So, Oh, wow. We're of that. Rusty was a line of duty. Henry was not because we couldn't tell where uh, his cancer began. Punky was line of duty because it was long. Brad was obviously line of duty because of a tractor trailer hit him. Uh, Jeff was uh, awarded line of duty death benefits and we're still working on Jimmy. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's that's uh, a lot to deal with. Yeah, man. We're, we actually have a check. It's, it's awful, but I, I think it's important to share with people because we've learned some stuff the hard way. Um, we have a checklist of things and forms and we understand the process a little better of what has to happen when the, when these things happen, when something goes wrong. But, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to hold it together and, and figure this out. And there's a few things I would tell the folks listening that I think are really important that everybody do. And they're simple. Um, the first thing is the exposure log. Mm -hmm. You absolutely must keep an exposure log. Yeah. Now we've, we have since uh, put some automation to that. So when you, certain things you click in our reports, it automatically creates that in the background uh, so that that report exists. But uh, particularly for us older guys who were around long before there was a computer to report something on, you know, with the paper right. reports. I, and plus, plus, I don't know that, I mean, I, I hope we can trust our organizations to keep those records, but I'm not going to put my personal, my, my family's, uh, well-being in their hands. I'm going to do that myself. So we, we recommend people just keep a simple notebook. I was exposed to an IDLH atmosphere on this date. And this was maybe a report number or something, mm -hmm. uh, because in, at least in Virginia, the state police actually come investigate these claims. And, uh, these are the first things they're looking for is, is show me how this exposure was work related. You have to document that. Yeah. And, uh, it's just simple, man. Just keep a notebook, not, not anything complicated. But particularly your recruits, when they come on the job, get you a notebook, son, and you write down every time, you know, and you, and you do that for, the, for your career and hope right. you never need it. But if you do, at least you'll have it. And then the uh, immediate gross decon, I think, is something that we could probably still be better at. You know that, you know, it is. it's like kind of like when we got SCBA, we weren't too happy about that either. Right. But uh, we eventually adopted, uh, you know, to that. Uh, but we need really do need to be deconning. Uh, looking at safe work practices and the fire stations as to how we decon things. Uh, and even this, even to the point of station design, we're getting ready to build a new fire station here and we've incorporated as much decon uh, capabilities as we can afford in there to make sure it's, it's almost like coming through a nine step, you know, decon process when you come off the rig, but whatever it takes, uh, we got to stop this cycle somehow. Yeah. yeah and then I agree. The thing we're studying right now, my logistic guys are great. They'll, they'll dig in on stuff. Uh, Brad was actually my PPE guru back before he was killed. And now we've, we've got new guys on there working on it. And uh, we're looking at this thing, PFAS, PFAS. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just learning about it myself. I'm about two weeks in of trying to understand what the heck this is. But uh, 
it, it seems that the, the stuff they make our turnout gear out of is a problem. Right. And, and my hats off to the guys who are out bird dogging this way ahead of us, uh, that have been banging the drum for a long time. And we're really kind of slow to listen apparently, but, um, it sounds like it's, it's going to be a, a challenge because it's not something that the manufacturers, it's not like you can just choose another manufacturer. They're all working with the same, with the same product. So, uh, it's going to probably require an NFPA, uh, change is what I suspect in the, in the PPE standard to try to eliminate or at least reduce or figure out how to manage this stuff because your turnout gear, even though it's clean, uh, it, it appears that it is, uh, emitting some things that could be bad for us, you know, and you got your turnout gear rather right around in your trunk or your car, you know, or taking it home or whatever you, even if it's clean, it could be, uh, emitting some bad stuff. So we're just starting to get our head around it and, uh, you know, looking for anything we can think of. Like I know, uh, three of the guys that I've just mentioned all worked at an airport fire department before they came to us. Right. Uh, so, so that was something that we were kind of side eyeing a little bit. And then, uh, and then, you know, what fire did we all go to? That's kind of the thing that scares us the most. Like we all, all these guys have mostly been East at the East end of our County. So we all kind of ran together around the same time back in the eighties and nineties. And, uh, we worry that maybe we went to the, we all went to the same fire, you know, Yeah. that, uh, could be a problem. So it's, I, I would just say, you know, you want to have your exposure log, your decons. Uh, I encourage people to make a kit. This is something that we've we've learned from dealing with uh, the aftermath of these deaths. Is uh, we're going to have to have copies of birth certificates for all the kids. We're going to have to have copies of all marriage licenses. That's one thing about firefighters is uh, sometimes we have an exciting history <laughs> outside of the mm -hmm. job. And uh, so if you've ever if you've been married more than once. We're going to need all the marriage certificates for that. We're going to need all of the divorce decrees for that. And we're going to need birth certificates for any kids that might be involved. So it's, mm. these are things you can do, kind of do some research, maybe ask some questions in your state about what does that process look like? And can you build a kit, uh, like a folder that you lock away in your safe somewhere and hope you never need it. But if it's there, if it ever becomes necessary and we can not have to ask the family, some of these questions you know we've got it all mm. figured out so that's right um i know a lot of guys and, and of course i didn't mention a will but yes lord please have a will uh you know take care take care of your family ahead of time so that you know sometimes you see it coming and sometimes you don't we've experienced both both are both are brutal but you want to make sure you've you've done everything you can to take care of your family so you can be at peace no, that's true. And I'm so sorry for all your losses. And I'm sure it's been a struggle to, to get through all those. It seems like it's back to back to back for you guys. Uh, and it just reminds me that uh, we just face so many hazards as firefighters, so many ways we can get hurt, injured, uh, or killed on the job. And, uh, you know, whatever we can take within our own power, our ownership uh, of keeping ourselves healthy for uh, ourselves, for our families, for our, our fellow firefighters, we need to make sure that we do it. And that might be, uh, like you said, cancer prevention uh, guidelines. If your fire department has not yet adopted or implemented cancer prevention guidelines, uh, for, uh, as such as gross decon on the scene and, uh, you know, uh, reach out to uh, Chief Buchanan or, or myself. Uh, we have things that we'll share with you. Uh, but it's really so important to to implement these procedures uh, to minimize our risks. We'll never eliminate all of our risks, but we can minimize our risks. And um, uh, thanks for your your advice on on keeping that notebook or that exposure log of of every smoke exposure, every fire uh, we go to where we're in an ideal age atmosphere. That's a great one. Uh, making sure we gross decon on scene. Uh, being very cognizant of the PFAS, uh, that's uh, per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. I Googled it while uh, you were talking about it. So go. I could uh, actually, uh, I, I wanted to save everybody else a little bit of time so they wouldn't have to do it. But yeah, that's per and polyfluoral alkyl substances that can be in our gear uh, when it's uh, sent to us from the manufacturer. So maybe the first step you can do is wash your gear a couple times. Uh, to help minimize those. And hopefully we're in the process as, as the fire service of eliminating them altogether from our gear would be the best solution. Uh, and the last thing you said, have a will. Um, God forbid uh, that we die too soon. Uh, but as we all know, tomorrow is not promised to anyone. So have a will uh, already set out and written out uh, for your family to take care of them as much 
as possible. Hey, you know, I'm gonna let me share share one thing with you because um, I, I really appreciate the work y'all have done with uh, Firefighter Fitness. Mm-hmm. And there's there's something that I heard an attorney say. We we'd managed to wiggle our way into a, a webinar. Uh, with the attorneys that uh, over, I guess, kind of oversee the workers' comp claims and the line of duty claims. I'm not sure they intended to let us in there, but we, we were in there nonetheless. And they mm-hmm. said something that I wrote down that I'll never forget them saying. And they said one of their primary strategies for denying line of duty claims is they try to turn contributing factors into causes. Oh. So they will look at everything that you have going on with you health-wise and, and kind of throw up every flare they can Sure. To say that, well, this could be it. This could have been a cause. You know, you're, you're on high blood pressure medicine. So that could be a cause. You, you've right. got, you're overweight, you smoke, you do all these, you know, these could all be causes to try to deflect the uh, presumptive uh, stuff with, with some of these illnesses that, that are in there. So when right. they said contributing factors into causes, I about fell out of my chair. I said, they, they know we're in here. They know that we heard that. Yeah. But, uh, right. But that's that's their strategy that uh, they're using. So uh, from a health perspective, man, you don't have to be ripped, but you need to, I would say the best goal is to be on as few meds as you can possibly get to. Sure. You know, sure. that's kind of rather than don't worry about can you see your six pack or not worry about how many meds you're taking. Yeah. And, uh, and try to reduce that. You get healthy in that sense. And uh, I think you'll be in a better position. Yeah. Uh, and another thing to think about going along with what you just with what you just said is just, yes, obesity is definitely a uh, contributing factor to cancer. Uh, you, you make yourself at a higher risk if you are obese uh, and even over overweight. Um, so also the foods we put in our body, how much we hydrate, how much sleep we get. I mean, so many things uh, mm-hmm. that can help us prevent cancer. And uh, no, we're not going to be perfect. And yes, we have to enjoy life. Uh, we don't know if and when we'll get that cancer diagnosis, uh, but we do need to take best care of ourselves by exercising, getting good sleep, uh, getting good rest, uh, and, and having a healthy, balanced diet of whole foods, a lot of water, uh, and minimizing our excessive alcohol consumption, especially <laughs> goes without saying, but tobacco consumption as well. Uh, so a lot of different risk factors uh, that we can control when it comes to cancer. Uh, and making sure that we don't uh, give in to our vices too much and we uh, manage our weight uh, well also. So a lot of good points there to unpack uh, that you that you shared with us. So next question for you, you know, I always say that true leaders are change agents and you've definitely been a change agent within the fire service. You've been successful in getting several influential fire service projects off the ground and eventually uh, to fruition and success. So talk about some of these projects and give your advice on how we can take a concept from the whiteboard or from nothing to reality. Well, I, if you go back, like, I think the first, first time I got in a, where I was in a room and I thought, Oh, what am I doing here? <laughs> that I might, <laughs> I might be out, outgunned here uh, was uh, I was a long time ago. Our, Virginia used to have this thing where we did firefighter one and firefighter two separately. And we found that we were wasting a lot of time, uh, reviewing stuff. So we did firefighter one ladders, for example, and then we came back for firefighter two ladders and re- spent the first half reviewing what we did in firefighter one. Well, for us, that was just yesterday. <laughs> so we didn't need to review it. <laughs> um, so we, we actually got the state to adopt a academy format where we consolidated those things, uh, kind of merged firefighter one and two together. And, uh, you know, getting that adopted through the state level was uh, kind of exciting. Uh, where you're dealing with the state, you know, I'm a young Lieutenant who's out at the training Academy. Next thing you know, I'm talking to the executive director of fire programs or whatever. I'm thinking, well, how did I get in here? But uh, I think a lot of that would be another example would be we working with Rick Lasky when he first created his saving our own program. Um, We were lucky enough to have a friend of mine uh, happen to be in one of the pilot programs very early on. And we got him out to Virginia to deliver that as a training, the trainer for us here. And we ended up taking that program and turning it into uh, the Mayday Firefighter Down program that we have in Virginia now. It's a state certification. Oh. And uh, another another time where I'm like, oh, I'm in the how did I get in this office? But um, I think a lot of that is is just. Um, have, just because you do something a certain way, I've never adopted the idea that that's the way it needs to be done. Mm. Or just because your neighbor does it a certain way doesn't mean that's the best way to do it. Right. Um, I think it's always important to look. In, I appreciate what we're doing, understand the history of what we're doing, but is there a better way to do it? And yeah. and 
to not be uh, kind of fearful of trying to figure it out. Let's take a whack at it and see. And, and then being able to, to follow that through. And I, I think like the Slice RS thing was a, was a hoot when we did that. Um, because if you look at like the Academy format was an administrative thing, the, the saving our own Mayday firefighter down thing was cool because we were jumping out of windows and stuff. We didn't hit the, uh, the only resistance we saw there was really from the, uh, this kind of the administrative side, like people were worried about risk, you know, that we were jumping up. We were, you want us to jump out of windows? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, they had that, you're going to have people rope sliding and they, they had some questions about the safety of the program, but we were able to get that through without a whole lot of challenge. But the uh, slice RS thing, uh, we caught a whole lot more resistance uh, from that one because it's a, it was a change of, of kind of, it's not really a change of tactics. I wouldn't say anything we did there was new, but I would say we were, our intention was to try to get the first line right um, mm -hmm. based on the fire science we had access to at the time. And uh, we, we figured if the, I still believe this, if the get the first line right, the fire goes a lot better, right? So right. Um, that's what we were after there. But we were trying to change a little bit of kind of some embedded behavior. But it was bumpy. Uh, there was some resistance to that. So I would say there's a couple of, big takeaways I've noticed over the years is uh, first off, don't be scared to change. Uh, that's, that's what the, if you're not moving forward and changing, you're rotting on the vine, man, go stay in the, stay in the same. will never, never get you really anywhere. You got to, don't be scared to push. But um, I think understanding that resistance is good. It took me a while to understand that, um, mm. that you won't change the fire service in any meaningful way without uh, can I, uh, without ticking them off first. Right. You're going to have a target on your back. <laughs> yes. If, if you're going to make a change you're going to get them hot first, they're going to, they're, they're going to be upset about it. And then eventually they'll, they'll adapt to it. Uh, me included. I've, you know, I always joke that uh, the, the whole way I got into that slice RS thing was just sitting next to the engineers at meetings and stuff. You know, I was just happened to be sitting next to Dan or something, you know, and he would show me what they were working on. And I've always liked the joke that I'm one of the first people that got mad about because I was, <laughs> you know, I was like, I thought he was nuts when he first started showing me that stuff. <laughs> but then over time, and, you know, I was just around him a lot because of other things. And uh, over time, he started to open my eyes and my brain to, well, maybe what we were doing wasn't the best way. And, you know, that evolved into our department trying to figure it out. And then that evolved into the ISFSI working on it and then it, to grants and that principles of modern fire attack program is kind of how that all got going. But, but understanding that um, you're going to meet resistance. And I have learned uh, that it's necessary. Paul Combs did a drawing. If you go back and look at some of his work, he did a drawing on the ISFSI thing where we actually had a, a picture of uh, one of his characters drawing slice RS on the whiteboard. And there were some guys in red vest behind him. I'm looking back at it now. There's some guys that are um, behind him that are, you know, giving him the grief about it. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I was really glad he, I got that picture because I can look at it to kind of staring at it. And you, I, I see it differently. I see those guys. Some people might see the guys in the red vest, the, the people that are going to hate on the new idea as a threat, but I see them as necessary. Mm. I, I, you're not going to move us in any meaningful way without those guys they're going to have to that's part of the process mm -hmm. you're going to go through right. the go through the turbulence and it will come out on the other side and you just got to ride it out i remember when i first got ready to hit the button on the first time i ever said this stuff out in public and uh i looked at the button for a second i thought man here goes nothing because even some of my best friends are going to think i lost my mind when i when this goes out you know it's like it's a a departure of what we thought what I thought I was and probably what they thought I was too. Like they're, what's wrong with him, you know? And, uh, and you just ride it out. And, uh, it's, but I, I thought then, and I still believe now that we need to do a better job of understanding how to use the science to fight fire. And if that makes people upset or they don't want to hang out with me, I'm okay with that. <laughs> as long as, as long as you, you know, we make some improvements on the fire ground, that's what I really care about. So, um, you know, I remember clicking that button thinking, well, give us a minute and here we go. <laughs> and come, come and what may. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was, I was right. It took about 24 hours and then, and then it was on, but uh, 
you know, I, th I think the other thing, the big lesson I learned out of all those things was um, I could say this applies to the, to big federal government issues all the way down to local government issues that when you're trying to get something done, it's all about who, you know, I hate to tell you, but that's the, that's the reality. Mm. It's all about those relationships. You got to know people. And if you think the decision is being made in the meeting, you're, you're mistaken. Mm. Um, that decision was made before that meeting and you're just watching it play out. You know, first time I went to DC and was around a congressional hearing, I was like, Oh, this is how that works. Okay. <laughs> you know, where by the time you're watching the thing on TV, it's, it's already over. And, uh, you can apply that all the way back to your local government. It's these, you're going to have to know people. You're going to have to go shake hands. You're going to have to build relationships with folks. And when you need to get something done like that, you're going to have to work. They call it work in the back room. You're going to have to work the back room ahead of time and, uh, and kind of shepherd your project through. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're waiting to find out what's going to happen in the meeting, you, you're probably not going to get the outcome you wanted. Yeah. So it's, uh, it just takes time and patience and tenacity and, uh, you know, but I love it. I love it. I love when I see uh, somebody come along and they they have the passion and the courage and they'll, and they got the, the, the uh, foresight to stay with it and walk it through. I love watching those things happen. Mm. And, uh, and sometimes I don't always agree. Like I've had one uh, case where I absolutely disagreed with the, what the fellow was trying to do, but I could always say, I appreciated their effort. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, we disagreed about something. Uh, we will ultimately agree about it, but I, our our discussion was about timing of things, and uh, the, you know, I we, I had an idea of timing, and they had a different one, and we, that's what the argument was about. The the, the initiative was good, and uh, but I always appreciated. Oh, hey man, at least at least you're in there. You know, that's so kudos to you for that. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, change for the right reason. Uh, you know, it, it does take passion. It takes persistence. It takes focus. It's, it takes patience as well. And it doesn't happen overnight. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, firefighters who are not willing to change, I mean, they're not going to survive the fire service. They're not going to be successful within the fire service. And I really believe that in order to not only institute change, but, you know, we need to ask ourselves and always be curious, always have creativity and, and making sure that we're striving for innovation uh, and asking ourselves, is there a better way to do this? And I think if we're always have that mindset of, of curiosity, of asking, can this be done better? Is what we are doing actually working? I believe that's so important to making progress within ourselves and then also as firefighters and then the fire service. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about NFPA standards, every firefighter's favorite topic, right? So uh, so for those firefighters listening who, who don't know, or if you're not in the fire service, that is National Fire Protection Association standards. So most firefighters, I would say the majority of firefighters probably don't think about NFPA and how um, it really impacts their, their daily work environment and their operations, but they really do. Uh, but we as fire officers, instructors, leaders in the fire service, you know, we become well-versed in how important they are and what they are. And you've been someone who has uh, created, you've steered NFPA standards. So what is the overall process of creating them and updating them and changing them? The process itself is not unlike a legislative process, I guess. You have uh, stakeholder input, largely based on stakeholders um, of all, all types. You'll have... Um, I'm involved in all, a lot of the training ones and uh, we'll have instructors there. You have uh, chief officers there. You have vendors there, people who make the various training props that are involved, you know, people that build burn buildings and gas props and, and all that. And uh, you have all the stakeholders at the table and we, we just, it's kind of like writing a bill. You, you sit down and, and this is the problem at hand and uh, how are we going to tackle it? And you start to develop what the best practice is. And then there's, there's two things. There's, there's a standard and then there's a, a guide and they're, they're very different. A standard will say shall and shall not um, as, as far as given direction, it's written as, as a standard that, that is likely going to be adopted uh, and have some legal teeth to it. A guide is a best practice. So we will, we will say should in a guide and we will say shall in a standard to give you an idea of the difference. Right. So like the 1700 is the uh, guide for uh, 
fire dynamics in, in firefighting operations. And uh, that's a guide. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's a long document and it's was written by all of the researchers and, and people who are knee deep in, in the fire dynamics tactics. Uh, so it's a guide. It says, you know, you should consider this. You could consider this. It gives you all the, it's like a menu you can go through and uh, they don't really elevate one tactic over another. They just show you here are all the tactics and here's some of the reasons why you might pick these tactics. Uh, whereas something like the 1403 standard is very descriptive and describes how a lot of fire evolution will be conducted. Right. So it's, little bit different in those types of types of documents but you know something like the 1403 for example um the last iteration there was a lot of uh discussion i didn't know what the 1403 was till i started working in training i didn't care you know it's like whatever and then i started working out there and i noticed that the rules would change about every five years and i'm like who the heck is writing these rules and where are the where are these people <laughs> do they know anything about fighting fire you know it's like you kind of wondered about it and then um I started kind of looking into it and then kind of next thing I know I'm on the darn thing, you know, <laughs> once again, how did I get in this room? So you, you start, I kind of, I came in right as uh, 1403 was cycling through. So I got to see how that was done and uh, learned a lot in the process. And then over the years with the various iterations, every five years, you know, to, to work on that document and watch it change. Uh, we look at every public input. There's something you, you can do. You can submit a public input on a document when it's in cycle under review. And uh, we're going to look at all of those things. I never knew that until I got there. So mm. I was like, oh, you mean as an instructor, I could have I could have put my two cents worth in on this thing? Yep, you could have. And the committee would have had to look at it and, and give you an answer. <laughs> so right. That's good. We're going to respond back to you and tell you that we had, we, we adopted what you said, or, or maybe we amended what you said and used it in concept, or we rejected what you said. And here's the reason why. Mm. So you're going to get a response. And I was surprised, you know, at how little public input we get sometimes on things that really matter to firefighters. They're just not, mm. it's just not on their radar. They're not watching. And uh, like, I, I can tell you now, you know, we're, we're wrestling with the idea of, uh, the uh, OSB as fuel. That's a big topic. It's coming around. You know, we, we almost, uh, it almost was, uh, eliminated as a approved fuel. And as it turns out, we didn't know what to say you could use, you know what I mean? It's like, if you're going to eliminate a fuel, then you should know probably what to recommend or else we'll start throwing God knows what in there. We need to, <laughs> right. need to make sure we have some idea what we're doing. So there's research underway. Uh, a lot of times that's what drives that is we're looking at research that UL or NIST has done, you know, to, to give us the guidance on what the answer should be. And uh, so I expect you'll see, um, I think the time it'll work out that the next revision will probably have that research under our belt. We'll, we probably will say something about it. So that, that'd be, uh, something that firefighters would be interested in and you can comment on it and we will look at your comment. So, you know, I, I always thought that was something that uh, I didn't understand until I got in the middle of it. And then I was surprised um, sometimes how little feedback we get uh, from folks that are practitioners out there using this stuff. They end up, you know, you'll be fussing about it when the rules change, but you, <laughs> you're, if you're like me, you never said anything in the first place. Right. So um I always try to put that in, into firefighters awareness that that is out there and the documents that matter to you, uh, you should be kind of following those things and see when they go up for review. And if you want to make a change, put that in there. You might have a great idea that we have not thought of, and we won't know it if you don't throw your, throw it in the hat. So. Yeah, that's really so important. And, you know, it's great that you, uh, you know, these committees will listen to, uh, you know, firefighter Joe Blow's feedback, uh, no matter who they are. Um, adopted or rejected, amended, whatever mm -hmm. it might be. So my next question uh, to follow up on that is, is how do we as firefighters find out about these standards being changed and updated or created? I'll tell you a little secret. Not everybody knows about how their website works, but if you go and they're actually in the middle of compressing some things or consolidating some standards. So this will change over time. If you're listening down, you know, to this in a year or two, it might be different, but for today, uh, if you go to nfpa.org backslash and put the standard number. So like, if you want to mm -hmm. find the 1403 standard, which is on live fire training, you go to nfpa.org backslash 1403 and it'll take you right to it. 
No, oh, perfect. And, it, and then it will show you uh, what the previous editions were, what's the current edition, when's, when's it up for revision, and you can from there go make a public comment. So, okay, yeah, well, that's good to know. It's kind of a hot key good. to get right to it. There you go. That's uh, that's uh, some good uh, insider insider mm-hmm. knowledge right there. I appreciate that. Well, this this next question is going to be a fun one. Uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but like yours truly. Uh, you know, I, I'm a percussionist. You're a percussionist. We've been playing drums for a long time. We love music. Uh, you've been in numerous bands. Um, so this question is is kind of interesting. But what lessons have you learned from the music business that firefighters can also apply to their jobs? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you just brought that up towards the end. Otherwise, we would have talked about drums the whole time. Um, <laughs> That's right. So. There's a couple of things. I get to play at a, at a pretty high level. I play for a country guy now named Tony Jackson. So here's your commercial. Yeah. Go to TonyJacksonMusic.com and see all you want to know there. But it's a <laughs> traditional country show, right? So we we tour um, kind of seasonally, uh, and we play all over the country. And we're in Nashville, around Nashville players a lot. So there's a few things I've always thought were puzzling, like, um, I guess, entertaining. There, being in a band and being on an engine company are not that different. You, you have, you have four or five guys. We have our staffing is actually better in the music business. We usually have four or five uh, guys on a rig, and you get on a tour bus, and it's uh, it looks glamorous from the outside for a minute, but give it a couple of days, and it's like a submarine with a bunch of sweaty dudes in there. You know, it's it changes quickly. But there's a few things I've noticed about the attitude. I guess would be the way I would classify it between the two worlds I live in, and uh, one of those things is. The one thing about every professional musician is your, your rig must be bombproof. That's, that's mm. what we say. You, your rig absolutely must be bombproof. You have, have thought of every possible scenario, possible scenario of what could go wrong, and you have an alternative for that for immediate use. So, you know, we always have an extra pedal. Uh, we have an extra snare. We have, I have sticks everywhere in case I drop one. Uh, there's two of everything. I have a little case I carry that goes around with me everywhere I go. And, and in that case is literally two of everything I use. So we, we notoriously break things and um, there's always another one, <laughs> you know, there's always for immediate replacement. And um, that's how our, our fire rigs should be. Right. You know what I mean? Mm. It should be absolutely bomberproof. There should be no way I'm going to be at an incident and be surprised by anything to do with my equipment. Right. That, that would be, to have that happen at a professional level on, on a stage would be unacceptable. Right. So um, it's interesting, the attitude towards our gear, our, you know, we always say is your rig bomb proof. That's like absolutely got to be redundant, ready to go. And I mean, they, a lot of money is spent on that. Um, I, I, we, we played a show with Rascal Flats where I was looking at their, uh, their computer system that runs all the production in the back, the clicks and all that stuff. And uh, there are literally two of them. <laughs> wow there's two yeah, of everything it's yeah it's redundant so if one fails they just drop to the next one and that's it and i mean you know each thing probably costs you know god knows what thousands and thousands of dollars so sure um there is no there's a zero fail thing with with equipment and then the other thing i think is interesting is at that level everybody can play there's never a discussion yeah. about can you play it's assumed you can mm-hmm. play or you wouldn't be in the room if you couldn't <laughs> so, right. so then i go to the put my fire helmet on and it's like, it's a little bit different. Um, not everybody can play. I mean, mm-hmm. to be honest, you know, you, you all know, we all know how that works. There are some who can play and then there are some who maybe can't play and maybe some are just kind of lip syncing. <laughs> right. Exactly. You just know? playing along. Shall yes. We say. They're playing along. Uh, and our job as officers and leaders in the organization are to either teach them how to play or maybe they needed to find something else to do. So um, if you, you know, you, that's what happens in Nashville, man. If, if, if you can't play, you're not going to be there. So right. uh, it's just, that's just how it is. And then the, the other yeah. big lesson I would, I would say is these gigs, you really get the gig. It's all about the hang, as they say. Um, it's how are you to hang out with? Because we, in that world, we spend, hours and hours and hours getting ready to do something. And then yeah. we only get to do it for about 90 minutes. So, um, you know, most of the time you're just sitting in a tight space with each other. So you have to really be able to get along with people and uh, understand that 
sometimes people get frustrated and you got to be able to let that happen and not, you know, not make it worse. And it just people skills is really important as well. So. Oh, sure. So I love that your first lesson was that your rig must be bombproof and you have just like we need it on the fire ground plan A, plan B, plan C. So you have a backup redundant plan for if something goes wrong, we're going to figure out and we're going to make sure that we put our best foot forward. So we have to be flexible. We have to be adaptable. And then number two, uh, you are a consummate professional, whether you're on stage or you're on the fire ground. And that basically boils down to being competent at every level, uh, whether we're the firefighter or the driver or the officer, the chief level officer, the incident commander, at a baseline, you have to be competent and then you can build from there. And then lastly, you got to be a people person. You got to be able to to have that camaraderie, build that community uh, and make sure that you interact with others well. And uh, a lot of times when people are are too introverted or especially if they're ego driven or selfish they're not going to be successful in the f- fire service and overall if you're playing with the band you're not going to be successful if that's your mindset uh, ego over uh, everything else so some great advice there i think uh, they definitely uh, applies to both the fire service and, and the music business as well so Next question for you. You've been in the fire service for four decades. We said you started in 1982. You're someone, uh, I, I truly believe you still have such a high level of, of passion and drive about you. And so my question is, after four decades in the fire service, how do you maintain this high level of dedication? Well, I mean, it's, there's, it's, it's, it's comes in seasons, right? So, you know, like there, there have been times right. where uh, I've struggled, certainly, uh, all the time, really. And I'm always trying to, uh, every day I get up, I remind myself that this is, this is a blessing that I get to, I get to do this work. So even if I'm dealing with finance and, you know, logistics and stuff, it's it's still getting bullets to their front line. So let's make sure we make that, make that happen. But I I think, um, I think it's important to play the long game to uh, understand that some of the most challenging times over my career in the fire service when I was in those times, it felt like they would last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, it's just like excruciating, like, how can I do this another day? And, uh, you know, whatever the circumstance was, but then when you get past that and you look back on it, it was actually a short period of time mm-hmm. and, uh, it was actually a gift. Yeah. So that, what I thought was awful at the moment was, um, actually something that made me stronger. It made me uh, learn a lesson I needed to learn. And, and it was actually a gift that I was challenged in that way, but we don't tend to see that. And I would tell the young me that, you know, just relax, man, it'd be okay. Uh, Cause I was in a hurry <laughs> <You know? laughs> in those, in those days, I was in a hurry. But then when you realize it's, you, you've got a long career, I, I tell our, uh, Young folks, you know, we're on a 25 year of service, 50 years old to retire here. And uh, like, don't be such a hurry, man. You know, we got guys trying to get on the job at 18. I was dealing with the inquiry the other day with somebody. Could they be still be in high school and fill out the application? And I'm like, I, I, I guess. I don't know why you would. <laughs> you know, if that's yeah. what you really want to do, man. But but go have some fun. You know, go go learn. Go do something. Go see something. But uh what happens in that case, I've, I've found, is those of us that have started at a very young age like that, we're, we're limping to the finish line. So literally an orthopedic challenge to try to be in this job for a long period of time and uh, keep everything working. So don't get in too big of a rush. Everything will be all right. Uh, but understand that when you do find yourself, uh, when you thought you were the go-to guy and then you realize at some point you're that guy, just that's okay. It's going to happen to all of us. And uh, mm appreciate the lesson. Just appreciate it. It might hurt, but appreciate it. It's going to make you stronger and and better tomorrow. And you'll be able to come back and help our brothers and sisters do what we do best. That's some great advice there because, uh, you know, when I see someone like you who has so much passion, you know, my current battalion chief, he has so much passion. He's been in the fire service for three decades and you kind of look back and you're like, how, you know, how do they maintain that high level? But I'm, I'm, I appreciate your honesty in saying that, well, I'm not always like this. I've had, I've gone through the valleys, I've gone through struggles, but you have used the, that adversity, you know, you've seen it as opportunity and growth. Some people just stay down in those valleys and they don't get out of those valleys, uh, but we need to appreciate them 
for what they are, which is a, a time of growth and a time of learning. Uh, and we need to make sure that we don't stay down there. And that advice for yourself, uh, I love that. You know, don't be in such a hurry. Enjoy the process. Enjoy the journey. Uh, it's a long journey. It's a marathon. And, and don't go 100% all the time and don't rush into it. But uh, some some great advice there. I appreciate it. And I, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If you wouldn't mind, let everybody know how they can contact you and anything else you'd like to share. I just keep, a, I've got the old website, you know, that uh, like most of us do is just eddiebuchanan.rocks. I have a, I couldn't get the .com. So it's eddiebuchanan.rocks. And, I like uh, the .rocks better. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of interesting, but I've got everything there. You can find out about the music. You can find out about the lead with attitude thing. It's all kind of co-located uh, for the sake of simplicity. So, uh, and yeah, and eddiebuchanan at mac.com is my email. If you want to find me. Perfect. Well, thanks, Chief, for coming on the podcast. And to all those out there listening, stay fit, stay safe. And remember, when lives depend on us, success is our only option. Thanks for listening to the Firefighter Success Podcast. Go to firefightersuccessbook.com to learn more about the book, Firefighter Success, 20 C's to Firefighter Excellence. At the website, you can also download the free special report, 101 Rules for Firefighter Success.